This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, if you would. We're continuing our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you missed any of the messages so far, you can always get caught up at our website at huikala.church. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast. Download the Huikala app if you don't have it already, because here's the cool thing about our app. If you click on the podcast and click on, the note, uh, click on today's message, you can click on a button that says fill in notes and actually type in your notes for today's message uh, on your mobile device. Uh, so if that's helpful for you, uh, be sure to do that. Uh, also, the, uh, this is message number uh, 34 in our series entitled Magnify Jesus. Now, it might sound like you're a little bit behind if you're just coming in on message number 34, but here's the good news. We're just a little over one chapter through the book of Philippians, so you've got plenty of time to catch up. So, um, anyways, we find ourselves today in Philippians chapter number two. Last week, we took a look at uh, how uh, Jesus Christ took upon himself the form of a bond slave or uh, the Bible most English translations will use the word servant, but that can be used interchangeably with the word slave or bond slave. Uh, we took a look at really what that means for us and how we should live our life uh, with that same mind in Christ Jesus. We're continuing on. We titled today's message, The Darkness of Our Redemption, and we'll uh, take a look at that this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse uh, number 1 in Philippians chapter 2 and read through verse number 8. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort, of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation." And took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We, we take a look at really as we kind of unpack this passage here as Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Uh, this, this message, this, uh, I'm sorry, this entitled, entire book here is talking about the gospel and their partnership together in the gospel. It's really important that we understand as a church, our mission, the mission of the church is uh, what Jesus gave to us that we refer to as the Great Commission. Could be summarized in four main parts, go, win, baptize, teach. Uh, that's why we do what we do. That's how we do it. Uh, that's what we do. And so as, as uh, Paul writes to the church at Philippi here, he challenges them uh, to continue to strive together for the faith of the gospel. We find that in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. And he goes so far as to say this, let your conversation or the way that you live your life point other people to Jesus Christ. As we uh, have walked through uh, chapter number two at the beginning of that, he says, don't worry about yourself. Be focused on other people and how you can love and serve them. And he gets down to verse number five and says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it says that he... Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And so we talked about the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Not Jesus was God, or Jesus used to be God, or Jesus at one time uh, was God, but Jesus Christ is God. He always has been. He always will be. You cannot believe be a Bible-believing Christian if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ. It's just one of those non-negotiable Bible doctrines. 
But as being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Some English translations will uh, use the phrase, thought it not something to be grasped. Now, the idea is this, that Jesus Christ wasn't taking something that didn't belong to him by, uh, by taking the title of God. But he took upon himself the form of a servant. He emptied himself, verse number seven, uh, made himself of no reputation or emptied himself. Again, he never emptied himself of his deity, emptied himself of his re- uh, reputation, of the glory that he deserved. And took upon himself the form of a servant or a bond slave, and he humbled himself and became obedient, even if that meant death, and even the death of the cross. When the Bible says that he humbled himself, it's the idea, the, the word humbled means to be laid low. And so Jesus Christ, while he recognized that he was God, who should be exalted, high, holy, lifted up, he took himself and he laid himself low in the lowest form possible. What would be the lowest form that God of the universe could take on? The lowest possible form that he could take on was the form of a man. And through that life, he continued to be further and further obedient, the Bible tells us, even unto the death of the cross. This passage of scripture really is critical for us when we look at our salvation, our redemption. The whole reason that Jesus Christ came, Jesus came to save sinners. And so this passage really points us to the fact that he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Why is that important? Because we needed a savior and Jesus Christ is that savior. You see, from the very beginning of time, once sin entered into this world through uh, the person of Adam, The salvation of mankind always required a blood sacrifice. The salvation of mankind always required a blood sacrifice. You can think of it this way, that when sin came in, something had to die. In uh, Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, the very first man and woman ever to exist. God tells them, you can do whatever you want. You can hang out here in the garden. You can eat anything. You can go anywhere. You can max and relax as much as you want to. The Bible says that God walked with them and had conversations with them on a day-to-day basis. And God says the one thing that you can't do is you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. That's the only thing that's off limits. Everything else is yours. And then the devil came, and the Bible says that the devil deceived Eve. He tricked her. He said, did God really say that? Are you sure that's what he meant? You can touch it. You can eat it. You're not going to die. And just know this, from the very beginning of time, the devil's number one tactic that he uses against you and I is to cause us to question God's word. So that's why you and I just need to make up in our mind right here. I'm going to believe the Bible even when I don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't fit my circumstances. I just choose to believe God's word because the devil from the beginning of time has always tried to twist that or get you to doubt it. And so Eve is sitting there kind of scratching her head going, well, I mean, the day that we eat of it, he said we would die. And the devil says, you won't die. And so Eve took that fruit, and the Bible says that Eve was deceived, but Adam knew full well what was taking place. Adam wasn't tricked. Adam chose to disobey. He chose to rebel against God. And the moment that they did, the Bible says that their eyes were open. The moment that they did, the Bible says that they realized that they were naked, and they went and hid themselves. The Bible says that God walked through the garden, and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, "Uh, we're hiding because we're naked. And what does God say? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Now, God's not asking because he's trying to figure things out. Uh, You know, we as parents, uh, when we uh, find the bag of Oreos empty, we begin uh, our detective work right now. Who is in here? Who has chopped 
in their mouth. Who's not hungry for dinner? Uh, we start trying to figure things out. God wasn't trying to figure things out. Like, I wonder who told Adam that he was naked. God knew. And so just know this as well. This is another good principle for you. That when God begins to question you, know that he always knows the answers. He's just trying to get you to admit the truth. So sometimes when I read the Bible, if you, if you don't read the Bible and it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, you're probably not reading it well. God's word will always cause us to question the way that we're living, the thoughts that we're thinking, the things that we say. And when God causes us to question ourselves, it's not a bad thing. It's to help us to fall in line with the truth that he has revealed for us. And so Adam says, we, we ate of the tree. And God says, I told you that the day that you ate of the tree that you would die. Now, some people would look at this and say, well, it's an inconsistency in the Bible. God said that they were going to die the day that they ate of that fruit, and they didn't die right away, so the Bible's not true. Maybe God lied. Well, that's just a misunderstanding of what the word die and death means. Death means a separation. And the moment that they took of that fruit, they died spiritually. There was a separation between them and God. And one day they would die physically for sure, where their soul separated from their body forever. But in that moment that they ate of that fruit, they once were close with God, friends with God. They now had a broken, severed relationship with God as a result of that because of their sin. Sin always repels God because God is perfect. He is holy. He is without sin. And that always causes God to kind of push away sin. It repels him. And so because of that, the only way to make things right with God is there has to be a sacrifice made to make things right. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 21, and to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. You see, when sin enters, something must die. For Adam and Eve, to, the only way that they could cover their sin, uh, you, if you remember, Adam tried to cover up with fig leaves. You know the problem with fig leaves is they die. He's going to have to recover himself every single day. So God had to give them a covering, and that covering cost an animal its life. And God made them coats of skin from an animal, and an animal had to die to cover up Adam and Eve's sin. That's happened from the very, very beginning of time. We, we, we'll see in just a moment in the book of Leviticus, there's a blood offering that's offered for the, the, the sins of the people so that they can cover up their sins, and an animal had to die for that. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse number 23, the wages of sin is death because you and I have sinned against the holy God. Something has to die, and you know who has to die? It's us. The wages of sin is death. Uh, uh, just like you get a paycheck and at the end of the week you get a statement that shows your wages. If you're in the military, you might get a leave and earning statement to show your wages for that period. Your wages for your sin, the Bible says, what you've earned is death. And that's not just the fact that we're going to physically die one day. It's a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God. And try as it we might, we cannot close that gap on our own. You could be baptized in every body of water in the world and it would never close that gap that you have with God because you're spiritually dead. Try to be as religious as you want, spiritually dead. Maybe I'll join a church. Maybe I'll do good things. Maybe I'll, I'll help other people. Maybe I'll read the Bible. Maybe I'll pray a lot. Maybe that'll close that gap with God. Nothing can close that gap that you and I can do of our own self because something has to die. And the only way that you can pay what you owe to God is to die physically, first of all. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Every single person in this room, when we take our last breath, will be face-to-face -face with the holy God and standing before God in judgment. 
that either is very reassuring for you or absolutely terrifying for you. But everyone will stand before God one day. And God's not gonna have this big scale where he puts our good works versus our bad works and he tries to weigh them out and see which one uh, is better. The only thing that Jesus, that God wants to know is what have you done with Jesus? Who's gonna die here? And the Bible tells us this is the greatest news ever. Romans chapter five, verse number eight, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I was supposed to die, but Jesus took my place and died in my place. I was supposed to be punished, but Jesus was punished in my place because somebody has to die and Jesus says, I'm willing to go on their behalf. You see, sin is always destructive. Sin always brings forth death. Uh, the book of James chapter number one says that every man is, is deceived when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And sin brings forth death eventually in the end. That sin always brings chaos, death, destruction every single time that's built in consequences to our sin because when we sin, something has to die. You see, animal sacrifices could not wash away our sin. God made a way in the Old Testament for the children of Israel to offer an animal sacrifice, whether it be a lamb or a, a bull or a goat. And this animal would be bled out over the altar, and the idea was, was it would cover the sins of the people, but that wasn't sufficient. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. They, they brought sacrifices all the time, but it couldn't make things right with God. So the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament could not wash away sin. So sometimes people ask the question, well, how did people in the Old Testament before Jesus get saved? How did they, how did they come to faith and, and, and be justified or saved before Jesus Christ? And the answer was obedience to the law by faith. And so the, their obedience to the law was evidence of their faith in God's word. Uh, just like you and I, the only way that we can be saved is our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. By th them, by following the law, by making these sacrifices, by obeying God's law that they had, they said, I believe God, I believe his word, and I believe in the system that he has set for us. And the Bible says that Abraham, in the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was justified, declared righteous before God by faith, in God's system that he had set up for them. But the idea of taking an animal's blood and covering up our sin would never truly pay for anyone's sin. You see, the uh, system that God set up, the law, only pointed to the coming of the Messiah. Keep your finger here in the book of Philippians. We'll come back here in just a second, but turn over to the book of Leviticus, if you would. Leviticus uh, chapter number 16. Sometimes when folks, when they want to, they say, I want to start reading the Bible. I want to start in the book of Genesis and read that and, and read through the end of to Revelation. Like, a, like maybe the Bible's a novel. Let me just tell you this. If you're a newer Christian and you're looking to read through the Bible, I would encourage a couple things for you. First of all, the book of Proverbs, outstanding book of wisdom. The book of Psalms is a phenomenal book of encouragement and help. If you want to find out more about Jesus and who he is, read through the book of, uh, of John. Maybe read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Read the book of Romans. We'll tell you a lot about theology and God and what he expects of you and things like that. Sometimes people, if they're new to the Bible, oh, I just want to read the whole thing. 
And they'll start in Genesis, and Genesis is awesome. Creation, that's exciting. Worldwide flood of Noah, that's incredible. Abraham and Sarah, they leave, and God makes a great nation out of them. He has, he has sons, uh, and, and God gave him a son, Isaac. He went, went to sacrifice him. He didn't have to. From Isaac came two sons, Jacob and Esau, and then we come from that because the children of Israel. And then you got Joseph, he had a coat of many colors, gets sold into slavery, ends up going from being a slave in the dungeon to the second guy in command in all of Egypt, and then brings all of his brothers there. Big, huge reunion, how awesome. Book of Exodus opens up. Everybody's forgotten who Joseph is. They're in slavery now. And God says, tell them to set my people free. And Moses goes and there's the 10 plagues. And they take the children of Israel out of uh, slavery in Egypt and lead them out into the wilderness. And they're going to find the promised land. And goes, yes, this is awesome. And then they continue reading on. You get to the book of Leviticus. And it's just like, hold up for a second. This isn't fun anymore. If you've never read through the book of Leviticus, basically uh, it's about as exciting as reading through like the, the statutes and laws for the state of Hawaii, uh, because that's what it is. It's a law book. And I, I don't mean that to, to make the Bible seem boring or that it's not good or to that God you know, stuff by giving us the book of Leviticus. It's just very, very legal uh, terminology, very, very dry uh, rules, regulations, guidelines, sacrifices, and things like that. And if you were to just read Leviticus, again, going from Genesis and Exodus and then the book of Leviticus, you're just like, what in the world is going on here? I've often called Leviticus the widow maker of the one-year Bible reading program because you make it there and you're just like, I just can't do it anymore. But here's the thing about Leviticus. Leviticus was never meant to be an exciting book by itself. And I can imagine, uh, you know, being a, a Jew in the early ages and reading through the book of Leviticus going, man, this is so heavy, you know. I got to keep all these rules and all these guidelines and do all these sacrifices and things like that. But you and I have the privilege of reading the Bible backwards. I know how it ends. I know what's going on right now. And I know how that fits with what happened in the book of Leviticus and so that makes this come alive even more. And so Leviticus chapter uh, 16, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Leviticus 16, yeah, uh, starting in verse number five. Now we're going to read a, a pretty lengthy passage of scripture. Stick with me because it might get dry in spots, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to explain it all to you and it's going to make a whole lot of sense for you, all right? Uh, Leviticus 16, verse number five. Speaking of Aaron, he shall take the congregation of the children of Israel, two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer a bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So pause for just a second. Aaron is basically going to make a sacrifice for everybody, a nationwide sacrifice for all of God's people. Aaron's going to do that. Aaron's fulfilling the role of what will later be called the high priest. And before he can ever become, come before God and offer a sacrifice, Aaron, first of all, has to cleanse himself. And so Aaron brings a bull, which is an offering for his own sin before he can ever even come in God's sight. So Aaron makes a sacrifice, verse number six, for himself. Next, verse number seven, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, which is kind of like rolling dice, one for the Lord and the other for a lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him a sin offering, but on the goat which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, will be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So two goats here, one of them's going to die and the other one's going to be sent out as a scapegoat into the wilderness. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. Verse number 11, Aaron shall bring the bullock of sin offering, which is for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering for himself. Aaron is getting himself ready to be able to make the sacrifice. Verse 12, he'll take a censer full of burning coals from off the fire of the altar of the Lord, his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. He shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord. The cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat. It's on the testimony that he die not. Now, there's the Ark of the Covenant that's there. 
And on the Ark of the Covenant, there's two angels that are up there with, with their wings that are covering their face. Uh, if you ever saw Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's that, that Ark of the Covenant, okay? The top of that is called the mercy seat. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm sorry for you. Uh, the top there where the angels are is called the mercy seat. And he says, I want you to take uh, the fire, uh, I'm sorry, the, the incense, put it upon the mercy seat. Verse number 14, you should take the blood of the bullock, sprinkle it with a finger on the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat, you should sprinkle the blood with the finger seven times. Now, again, understand what I'm talking about here when you go from like stories like people being brought out of slavery and people overthrowing world governments and you get to like take the blood, put it on the mercy seat, take more blood, sprinkle it around seven times and make sure that when you sprinkle it, it's going eastward, right? You read into this, you're like, what in the world is this talking about? Verse number 15, then he shall kill the goat for the sin offering that's for the people, bring the blood within the veil and do with the blood that he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat before the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions for all their sins. And shall, so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth amongst in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, let, let's skip down to verse number uh, 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. He shall let the goat go in the wilderness. All that's really complicated, it sounds, but here's the, I'm going to make it really easy for you. There's two goats that Aaron has. First of all, Aaron has to get himself right. He kills a bull and sacrifices for himself personally so that he is clean before God and comes to him. Again, this just goes to show that you just can't show up to God with all of your sin and expect God to accept you the way that you are. You gotta clean yourself up. But here's the good news. You don't have to clean yourself up. God will help you with the cleanup process. But after Aaron's cleaned himself, he has two goats. Now these goats, we'll find out later, can also be lambs that are offered. But here's the thing with these goats and these animals. They have to be perfect without spot, without blemish. They can't be sick. You can't give God the three-legged goat that was going to die anyways. You can't give him the blind goat. You got to give him the best that you have, these two goats. Between these two goats, there's one that's going to die and one that's going to live. And so the one that's going to die, you take all the sins of the people and you ceremoniously place the sins of the people upon the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, inside the temple. You kill that goat and you take the blood of the goat and you pour it over the top of that mercy seat so that the blood covers the sins of the people so that when God looks down at the mercy seat, he no longer sees the sin, but he sees the blood covering that's there. Is everybody with me so far? Okay, that's goat number one. The second goat. Aaron takes and places his hands upon that goat and begins to confess the sins of all the people, all the wrong that they've done over this goat, placing the sins of the people on the goat, and then the goat is sent out, never to be seen again, into the wilderness where nobody else is and nobody can ever find it again. Now imagine if I'm a Jew that's reading this for the first time, I'm scratching my head going like, can we like, why don't we got to use a goat? Why don't, we, why don't we have to use lambs? Can we use something else? Why don't we have to give our best? Now why do we have to clean ourselves before we come to the Lord? Why do we have to, to, to kill it? Can, can't we just like wound it a little bit? You know, can we just like get a little bit of blood? Why does it have to die? The goat that's being sent out, can we like get that goat back? Because it could like still be good for something. Why do we have to send it away forever? And why is this process so incredibly complicated? Why can't God just say, I forgive it, it's over and done with, because something has to die. And so the goat dies. 
So this process that happens here, this sin offering that would be made for the nationwide sin offering, was known as the Day of Atonement, and Jews still celebrate this to this day. It's called Yom Kippur. And so they still celebrate this Day of Atonement and still go through this ceremonial process of of covering the sins of the people. But you and I have the luxury of reading the Bible backwards. And we say, both goats, do you know who those goats are? Jesus, both of them. Jesus was taken and he was crucified. His blood was shed as a sin offering for our sins. But wait a minute, Jesus never cleansed himself the way that Aaron did. Jesus came already clean. Jesus didn't need to make sacrifice for himself. Jesus was perfect and spotless himself. He acted as a high priest, but didn't need to cleanse himself first because he was already clean. Not only was he the high priest, but he was also the first offering, the sin offering. He offered his body up to be bled out to cover the sins of the people. That's why the Bible says, oh, this is so good. In 1 John, the Bible says that his blood is a propitiation for our sins. And sometimes people go like, oh, why does the Bible got to use big words? It's so confusing. I want to find a Bible version that uses a word that's, that's smaller, like atoning sacrifice. That's a lot easier. Propitiation is a beautiful Bible word. You know what it means? It means a satisfactory payment. But that word propitiation also links to the same word that's found in the Old Testament of the blood covering over the mercy seat of the Old Testament. Those two words are inextricably linked together that they may mean exactly the same thing. So when John says in 1 John that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, John is saying Jesus is the Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sins of the world by covering them so that God looks at Jesus' sacrifice and says, this is a sufficient payment and this will cover the sins of the people. But it doesn't stop there. Our sins were placed upon Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So our sins were placed upon the second goat, the scapegoat, which is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus became that scapegoat and he took our sins and the Bible says he cast them as far as the east is from the west and he remembers them no more. The Bible says all of our iniquities are in the depths of the sea. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't it interesting that the escape goat that was sent out was sent out into the wilderness, but when Jesus Christ was crucified, he wasn't crucified inside the city gates of Jerusalem. He was crucified outside the city gates. You know why? Because he took our sin away from us. We look back at this and say, wow, what a beautiful picture. So you see, the crucifixion was necessary for us. The the crucifixion and the shedding of blood was a requirement for our salvation. And friend, if there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, if you you died today and you're not 100% sure you go to heaven, please listen up to this. You deserve to die for your sin. I deserve to die for my sin. We deserve God's wrath and judgment. But Jesus came and went to the cross for one purpose and one purpose only, to be the sacrifice for our sins. But you've got to be willing to accept that sacrifice. Jesus made the payment to your account. You've got to agree to receive it. And the only way that you can receive it is by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he has paid the price of your sin, And then repenting of your sin, recognizing that you've been done wrong, that you've done God wrong, that you've broken his law. Just as Aaron had to confess the sins of the people over that goat before it got sent out, you and I must confess our sin to God and say, God, I've broken your law. I'm a sinner. I know that I've wronged you. I'm asking you to save me and forgive me. 
I was a nine-year-old boy when I accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, when his blood was applied to my account and God covered my sin with the blood of Jesus and placed all of my sin upon him and he took it away from me forever. And today I stand here born again because of what Jesus has done for me. Friend, there's never been a time in your life where you've been born again. Let today be that day. Jesus said this in John chapter three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You cannot go to heaven without being saved. I didn't say that, Jesus said it. And so if you're here today and you say, I'm not 100% sure that I'm saved, please do not leave here without knowing for sure. I'm not trying to get you to be a Baptist. I'm not trying to get you to join our church. I'm not trying to get you to sign up for a class. I'm not trying to baptize you. I'm trying to help you know for sure that when you die, your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. It's the most important thing in the world. Now, the way that Jesus died, oh man. The Bible says in Philippians chapter two, turn back to Philippians two if you would. Verse number eight, being found fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, crucifixion was the most humiliating, shameful, and painful way to die. This is as bad as it got. Romans uh, had become kind of the, uh, I guess you will, professional, the crucifixion. You see, there were previous civilizations prior to the Roman Empire that had practiced uh, things like crucifixion, but they found oftentimes that people would typically die too early. They would put a single stake and sharpen the stake at the top and place bodies over the top of it with the stake going through their back and up through their torso, and they found they only lasted maybe 30 seconds to a minute. They died way too quickly. And so the idea was to find some way that you could maybe not impale them, but damage them for an extended period of time. The word excruciating that we find in our English vocabulary is a word that means from the cross. It, it literally means that that's the type of pain that one would endure through a crucifixion, excruciating pain. It was not only excruciatingly painful in the fact that uh, typically we, when we see um, Instances of crucifixion, maybe in artist renderings and things like that, we'll typically see a single stake through each hand and maybe a feet crossed over and a single stake through their feet. Sometimes to keep them on the cross, they would put a stake through the two bones that are found in their arms to, to hold them better on the cross. Sometimes they wouldn't give them the dignity of actually putting both of their feet cross-legged like that. They would actually run the stakes through the ankle bones on the outside and crucify them with their legs spread. It was a humiliating and shameful way to die. Uh, Roman uh, soldiers wouldn't have been so uh, modest as to allow Jesus to wear a loincloth the way that we see him in artist renderings. The Bible even says that they took from him his garments and Jesus was more than likely crucified completely naked. It was meant to be shameful. It was meant to be humiliating. Oftentimes, history tells us that uh, Jesus wasn't crucified on a big 10-foot cross so that everybody could see. Typically, they crucified people at eye level so that people could go by and mock and yell and, and spit in their face while they stood there writhing in pain and covered in their own blood and covered in their own vomit. Jesus, as he was crucified, not only endured shame, humiliation, pain at the hands of these Roman folks, the Bible says that they plucked his beard out. And while that certainly would be a painful thing to do, it wasn't meant to just be painful. It was the ultimate sign of disrespect. If you remember the story in the Old Testament, David's men went out to army and one of the army had captured them and they shaved half of their beards and sent them back home. And David told the guys, hey guys, wait over here in this cave until your beards grow back because it would be embarrassing for you to come back with a half-shaven beard or even a shaven beard. 
And so to, to pull Jesus' beard out wasn't just an act of, uh, of pain. It was an act of shame and humiliation. But you see, Jesus, when he died, he couldn't just die of old age. He couldn't just die of a heart attack. He had to die by a blood sacrifice. His blood had to be shed because that's the system that God had in place. You see, under Roman authority, crucifixion was so heinous that it was reserved only for foreigners and slaves. It was against the law to crucify a Roman citizen because it was the most undignified way to die. And so if you're a Roman citizen, you could not die by crucifixion. They'd find another way to kill you. It didn't matter if you were a rapist, if you were a child molester. It didn't matter if you were a murderer. You could not die by crucifixion because it was, it was too bad. But for foreigners and slaves, it was an acceptable form of execution. And again, I don't think God does anything by coincidence. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus Christ took upon himself the form of a slave and he died a slave's death. One author put it this way, the death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have and the horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified up to the point which they can be endured at all, but stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. <laughs> the whole idea was you're going to stay awake and we're going to enjoy this. They took them up to the point where one would pass out and they backed off just a little bit so that you could be fully conscious to endure this type of pain. Oftentimes, as people hung up on the cross, their, their lungs would begin to fill with blood. And the only way that they could catch a breath was to be able to lift themselves up by their feet to catch a breath. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to die of suffocation on the cross because they didn't have the power to lift themselves up. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. So when we think of the fact that Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, I know that. You need to understand the depths of the sacrifice that was made for you. When the Bible says that Jesus humbled himself unto death, he didn't, wasn't just willing to die. He was obedient even to the death of the cross. Crucifixion wasn't just a terrible thing in, in Roman tradition. But under Jewish custom, crucifixion was a form of hanging, which was evidence that this person was cursed of God. Anyone who had a death by hanging, it was automatically understood this person has really upset God and this person has been cursed by God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter number 21, verse number 22 says that if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death, thou shalt hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon a tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day for he that is hanged is accursed of God that the land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance. <laughs> the book of Deuteronomy says, hey, if somebody dies, it's because they're cursed of God. But don't let them hang overnight, because then your whole land will be cursed as a result of it. I don't know if you know much about the crucifixion story, but it goes like this. Jesus hung the day before the Passover feast. And the Passover feast was coming, and as he hung there, the Jews got a little bit nervous and said, guys, we got to get these guys down before the Passover feast starts. So whatever you got to do to get these guys out of here, go ahead and do it. And the Bible says that the Roman guards began to break the legs of the two thieves that were with him. And when they broke their legs, they could no longer lift themselves up to breathe. And it was only a matter of time before they died. 
They took a spear and they ran it through Jesus' side and blood and water flowed from his side. And they looked and they found that he was already dead and there was no need to break his legs, therefore keeping the prophecy that was prophesied in the Old Testament that not a single bone would be broken. All of this again pointing to a plan that God had already set up that was now in motion. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 13, Paul says it this way, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. <laughs> As Jesus hung upon the cross, that was proof that he was cursed of God. But do you, you know why he was cursed of God? Because of my sin. Sure, he was cursed of God. Everybody looked at, at Jesus as he's being crucified. He said, all this time he's been saying he's the son of God. He said he's the son of God that he should call down angels to come and save him. He saved other people. He can't save himself. Look, his own father has forsaken him. Yeah, that's true. All of that is true because of my sin, because of your sin. See, Jesus wasn't forced to his execution. He offered himself up willingly. That's what... Philippians 2.8 means when he says he humbled himself and was obedient even unto the death of the cross. Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down that I can pick it back up again anytime I want to. Jesus wasn't hoodwinked by Judas. Jesus wasn't set up in some way that he was taken by surprise. Jesus is obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Imagine this, Jesus knew as he chose Judas to be his follower, this is going to be the guy that's going to betray me. This is going to be the guy that's going to set everything up for my crucifixion. Matthew chapter 26, verse number 39, Jesus went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thou. Hey, I'm not trying to get what I want out of this God. If there's another way, I'd be willing to take that, but I know that there's not, so I'm willing to go. I hope this speaks to you when you read verses like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you know who said that? Jesus said that. Jesus was talking to a religious man by the name of Nicodemus when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. <laughs> Knowing that he was that son who would be given, who would be the sacrifice for sin, who knew whose blood would be shed, and he went willingly. You see, the crucifixion was a requirement for our redemption. There's no two ways around that. Jesus had to be crucified for us to be redeemed. We took a look at last week how the word redeemed means to be purchased back. And you and I belonged to our master's sin. Romans chapter five says that we were Romans chapter six says that we were the slaves of sin. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that we were of our father, the devil. We were the children of wrath, the children of disobedience. And to get us, God had to pay a price of that redemption. And the price was the blood of his own son. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That verse right there is just so rich in the fact that while Jesus hung up on the cross, inside his body, he was bearing my sins. That's heavy. This is why I, I absolutely abhor any form of Christianity that is light on sin. Sin's not that big of a deal. We're all sinners. 
your sin, no different than my sin. Sin's okay. God created us with our sin, and God is okay with our sin. God knows our shortcomings, and he chooses to love us anyways. Garbage. My sin is not something that God winks at or is like, oh, that's okay, Anthony. Just pats me on the head. I know, I know you're messed up, buddy. It's okay. No, God looks at my sin and says, that's what put my son to death. I'm trying to deliver you from that. Why do you continue to go back to it? God is not soft on sin by any stretch of the imagination. God expects from us to live in lives free from sin because we have been redeemed, because we have been set free. And every time that you and I sin against the holy God, that's the sin that God was bearing on that tree. Please, let's have a, a godly view of our own sin and recognize it for what it is. It says, he being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53 if you would. Isaiah 53 is uh, what we sometimes refer to as a messianic psalm or a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy of a coming Messiah. If you've never had a chance to read and really meditate on Isaiah 53, you've got to get after it. It is so, so good. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number one, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Verse two, speaking of Jesus Christ, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Verse two is an interesting verse because it says this, Jesus looked like any other guy. You know, you know it's funny when you read like, children's uh, uh, like Sunday school materials and stuff like that or kids books where it shows Jesus. You can always pick Jesus out of a crowd, can't you? He's always the guy with perfectly coiffed hair with a megawatt smile. All, he's all, his skin's always lily white, right? Like Jesus was white. Um, and, and he always has the white robe on. And you can always pick out the one that's Jesus. You're never like, I'm not sure if that's Jesus or Simon Peter. You always know it's Jesus because he looks like Jesus, right? It's interesting, Isaiah says, if you saw him, you wouldn't pick him out of a crowd like he's the, the, the beautiful, you know, son of God here. There wasn't anything that, that drew you to him in the way that he looked. Verse number three, he's despised and rejected of men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Like, the people that, that saw him being crucified, like, man, he did something to make God really angry. And, and they, they turned, as it were, their faces from him because they, they couldn't even stand to look at him. I'm not sure what happened here, but this guy has done something terribly, terribly wrong. Verse number five says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. You see, he had done nothing wrong. He received everything he received because of my sin. He endured all of that because of me and my shortcomings. And, and we want to say that, like, oh, my sin's just a bad habit. No, it's not. It's sin. Call it what it is. Well, I've always struggled with this. This is just who I am. No, it's not. It's sin. Well, this is just my personality. No, it's not. It's sin. Call it what it is because it put our Savior to death. 
And the sooner that we can own our sin, we can grow from that. But the Bible says that Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was placed upon him. In Isaiah 53, 5, I want to stop here for just a second and say that this verse has been tweaked and misapplied by prosperity teachers to say that that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your physical healing and restoration, that Christians shouldn't get sick because Jesus went to the cross so that you'll never get sick. First of all, that is preposterous. Secondly, it's blasphemous. Jesus Christ died for our spiritual healing. But it goes on in verse number 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone into his own way and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Again, verse six, it says, we're all in the same boat together. If anybody feels like they don't need a savior, they're sorely mistaken. If anybody thinks that they're less of a sinner than somebody else, they're sorely mistaken because God hath placed upon Jesus the sins of us all. And that's the only hope that we have is by our sin being placed upon him. Verse number seven, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You call yourself the king of the Jews? I don't know. You said it. Speak. Don't you realize that I have the opportunity to set you free? Don't you realize that they're calling for you to be crucified and I have the power to set you free? And what did he say? Not a thing. Verse number eight, he was taken from prison to judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death because he'd done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse number 10 blows my mind every single time I read it. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is heavy, folks. As Jesus Christ hung upon that cross, suffering, bleeding, dying, He cried out and he said these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sky went black and for the first time in all of eternal history, the father separated himself from the son. And in that moment, they were no longer one because the son had become sin and the father could not be close to that. So he removed himself from his son and his son hung there on that cross God forsaken because he was bearing my sin. Yet verse number 10 says this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That while God the Father had to separate himself from God the Son while he was mercilessly executed, God found pleasure in that. How could God find pleasure in that? Some people have said it's a cosmic form of child abuse. No, no. He hath put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. You remember Leviticus where we talked about the offering for sin? Now God has made his own son an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse number 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Caught the father, saw God the son, and he said, that's it. I am satisfied with the payment that you have offered. The shedding of this blood is an offering for the sins of mankind. And God the father said, I am pleased with this sacrifice. 
And God the Son said these three words, it is finished. Done. And the payment for sin was complete. The good news is is that Jesus' sacrifice will be the final sacrifice for sin. This is it. All the days of blood, all the days of bulls and goats and lambs, all these big feasts and big holidays, all this priests and high priests and holy of holies, that's done. A sacrifice has been made once and for all. Hebrews, uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. You got to see this. I know we're going through a lot of scripture today, but I want you to just get how good this is. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 10. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to Jews, hence the name Hebrews. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews was to tie in the book of Leviticus and the Levitical law into who Jesus Christ is as Messiah, as Savior, as the final sacrifice. So as you read through the book of Hebrews, it's very rich in its tie back to the book of Leviticus and the Old Testament law. Hebrews 10.10 says this, by the which we are all sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Oh, I love that. No more yearly sacrifices anymore. There's been a sacrifice that was made one time for all people. Now again, Aaron would make his own sacrifice for himself. High priest make a sacrifice for himself. Then we'll make a sacrifice for the people once a year. Now on top of that, if you read through the, the book of Leviticus, if you sin against the law and you steal something, you got to make a, a sacrifice to make that right. You know, you uh, are, say something you shouldn't say to your neighbor. You got to make a sacrifice to make that right. No, no more sacrifices. There's been one sacrifice made once for all. Take a look at verse number 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Isn't it crazy? These priests offer all these sacrifices and it never took away anybody's sins. It just covered them up like they weren't there. But it never took away anybody's sins. And they offered, look what verse number 11 says, they offered the same sacrifices sometimes daily. But it never washed away anybody's sin. But this man, verse number 12, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. (laughs) I, I love that. Love that. You know why? Because Jesus, as he hung upon the cross, in a humiliating, shameful way to die. He said, it is finished. And the Bible says that he gave up the ghost. He was taken off the cross. He was placed in a borrowed tomb. The third day he rose again of his own power, victorious, just like he said that he would. He ascended 40 days later into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and I think he dusted his hands off and says, I think we're good. (laughs) Mm, Man, I love that. Once he made a sacrifice for sins forever, forever sat down at the right hand of God. Verse uh, 14, for by one offering hath he perfected for everyone of them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost is a witness to us. For he's also said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and my mind will I write in them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. The sacrifice has been made once and for all. This is why I'm thankful for the fact that once we accept Christ as Savior, once we're saved, once we're born again, we don't ever have to go back and get born again again. Because the sacrifice was made one time forever. There's no more sacrifice to be made. 
You've accepted the payment. God has placed it and has covered your sins. You don't have to do it once a year. You don't have to do it on a daily basis. That sacrifice was made once and for all. And when we sin against God, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't have to go back to another sacrifice. I don't have to get saved again. I don't have to be born again, again, ever. Because the sacrifice has already been made once and for all. A few final thoughts this morning and we're done. First of all, for Christians, we love the cross, we respect the cross, but we don't idolize or venerate the cross. The cross is merely a symbol, period. The cross in itself has no power in the fact of jewelry or uh, an artifact or anything along those lines. So while we as Bible-believing Christians look at the cross and we have a great level of respect for the cross and there's a lot of symbolism with the cross, the cross in and of itself has no power. I know people who, uh, who carry crosses with them, they hold them in their hand because they feel like that brings them power. The Bible has a name for that, it's called an idol. The second commandment is you shall have no graven images. So uh, that's not a good thing. Now, if you, if you have a cross necklace on or you have a cross bracelet, I'm not against that. Just please understand this. It has no power in and of itself. We don't place crosses in our house and all the walls so that we'll be surrounded by God's presence and God's power. If you want to put a cross up in your house, that's fine. If you want to use it as a decoration, that's okay. Just understand what it is. But you know what? Rather than focusing on a symbol rather than focusing on a piece of jewelry or a piece of furniture to bring power, how about you hide God's word in your heart? How about you meditate on that? Because there's power in God's word. There's not power in a piece of jewelry. There's not power in a piece of furniture that you have in your house. People have said before, like, you know, why doesn't our church have any crosses on the walls in here? Because there's no power in the symbol of the cross. There's much power in the person of the cross. Oh, we should, maybe we should get a statue of Jesus. Again, go back to the Ten Commandments. No graven images. Don't need statues. But we're commanded time and time again in God's Word to hide God's Word in our heart. Man, go for that. You want to print out Bible verses and put them on the walls in your house? Man, go for it. God's Word has power. We do recognize the cross as a brutal means of execution which saves us from our sin. Every time I see the cross, I can't help but think of Isaiah 53. You know, what's interesting is history tells us a lot about the crucifixion. Uh, I've read books, like several books, on crucifixion and Roman means of execution and things along those lines. Isaiah tells us about what the crucifixion was like and from a spiritual perspective especially. But you know what the Gospels really just tell us about his crucifixion? It's really simple. They crucified him. That's it. You see, so many times people want to focus on, you know, what what the cross looked like, or I want to have an accurate representation of the cross. And and let me challenge you with this too, that again, if you have this, I'm not against you. I just want to help inform you. If you have a, a carving or a picture or a piece of furniture or a piece of jewelry that has Jesus still on the cross, friend, please realize he's no longer on the cross, like ever. He's risen forever. And so, again, that would violate the second commandment to have no graven images or, and to make an image or an idol of Jesus Christ. We don't want to do that. But friend, Jesus is no longer in a humiliated, shameful state. He's our risen Savior. And so I know it's probably not as catchy to have like a risen tomb, or an empty tomb on your, on your necklace or something like that, but maybe we could like make that a thing. I don't know. Anyways. Um, <laughs> next, the cross is a symbol of uh, God's love and freedom that was purchased for us at the ultimate cost. 
I know that my freedom costs me something. It costs God everything. I know that my redemption costs the blood of my Savior. I get that. But I want to remember that. I want to remember what was paid for my freedom. I want to remember that my life was purchased at a high cost, so I need to make good on that investment. I want to live a life that was worth Jesus dying for. Because such a high price was paid for me to be free. And please understand this too. I've been accused, maybe rightfully so, I don't know, of not always being the most encouraging pastor in the world. And telling you that you're a terrible sinner who's in great need of a savior. I'm sorry if that's the case. But let me help you with this. God loves you so much that he knew what it would cost. Jesus loves you so much that he knew every single solitary thing he would ever have to go through and he chose to do it anyways because of his love for you. That God recognizes where you are, yes. God knows your shortcomings, yes. God wants more for you because you were created for more. But God loves you so much and he proved it by giving the thing that was the most important to him and he gave us his son, Now, I'm going to stop short of telling you that if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on, and if God had a wallet, you have photos of you. I want to stop short of that, but I want to tell you this. God loves you, okay? God so loved the world. God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son. And God knew what it was cost, and he said this, you're worth it. You're worth it. And so leads us to our final thought. The cross is a reminder of our worth to our father and our master. God had to purchase us back from the slave market of sin. God had to purchase us back from the world's way of doing things and he knew what it would cost and he says, you're worth it. I would totally do it again. (laughs) I don't know about you, but have you ever had buyer's remorse? I'm probably the only person who's ever done that before, you know. My wife is, uh, if you want to sell something to my wife, I'll tell you two ways you can do it. If you want to sell something to my wife, first of all, either get on Shark Tank, okay, because everything she finds on Shark Tank, she realizes that she has to have it and her life hasn't been complete because of that. The second is those goofy Instagram ads that come up. You're like, ooh, I never knew I needed that until five seconds ago and now I can't imagine how I could ever live without it. And we get the most random stuff in the mail all the time. Uh, and it's just like, I'm gonna block her Instagram, I'm gonna lock her out of her account and I'm gonna put a parental lock on the TV where she can't watch Shark Tank anymore. Uh, but Every now and then, you, things look really good on TV, you look really good on the internet, you get in, you're like, this is totally lame. Uh, and I've, that's happened to me multiple times. Uh, my vice is probably Amazon, I guess you could say. Uh, and so, because uh, they show like, people who bought what you really wanted bought these 12 other things. It's like, ooh, I didn't know those existed. Tell me about those 12 other things. And you get sucked in, right? But every now and then you buy something, you're like, this totally was not worth the money that I paid for it and returning it would be a hassle. There's been times where I've gotten stuff and it would be more trouble to send it back than it would be to, to just throw it away. And you just throw it away because you feel bad that you bought it. And then you're embarrassed by the fact, I don't even want to tell anybody I bought it because it was so terrible. Did you know that God never got buyer's remorse when it came to you? Think about that. God never been like, oh, I redeemed him and here he is, knucklehead. I should have never done that. God never got buyer's remorse because you're valuable to him. But here's the thing. I want to live a life that's valuable to him. And so I got to take a look at my life and say, am I living up to the price that was paid for me? 
Am I living in the freedom from my sin that costs God everything? Do I have an appropriate level of respect for the cross and all that was done for me? Or am I just kind of doing my own thing? Hey, I got my ticket to heaven. I'm going to kind of do my own thing now. No, no, no. I want to live for the one who gave everything for me. The most important thing in the world is if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, Maybe there's never been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior. Again, we're not trying to get you to join our church or to go to a class or to be baptized. I want you to know before you walk out those double doors that if you were to drop dead today, that heaven's your home. And the only way that you can do that is not through this church or any religious experience. It's about confessing your sin before God. I know that I'm a a sinner in need of salvation. Repenting of your sin, turning from it, and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Just as Aaron placed his hands on the horns of that goat and confessed the sins of the people over it. You too must confess your sin before a holy God. And if you do that, the Bible says that he will take your sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west and remember it no more. But for those of us that are saved, let's live this week like we belong to the master. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.